0: How did women contribute to the Army from its founding until today? What were the struggles of equality women faced in the Army and how has it changed over time? How did the Army Women's Museum contribute to the naming commission and how is the museum supporting this change? For answers to these questions and more Army History Insights, stay tuned.
1: Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, we are examining the role of women in Army history. Joining me by phone for this discussion is Tracy Bradford and Vicki Archuletti. Well, thank you both for being here.
2: Thanks for having us, Lee. Thank
0: you. Yeah, my pleasure. And just so folks know, uh, you are joining me by phone from the Army Women's Museum. So let me talk about uh, each of you a little bit first. So Tracy Bradford has worked in the Army Museum Enterprise for over 10 years. She's currently the curator at the United States Army Women's Museum. Prior to this, Tracy spent three years as a museum educator in the Programs and Education Department of the National Museum of the United States Army. An educator and interpreter for 25 years, Tracy has taught in secondary education, private industry, the federal government, and historical institutions across the country. Vicki Archuletti is a volunteer at the U.S. Army Women's Museum at Fort Lee. After her retirement from the Department of Defense, she began working at the museum to indulge her love of history. She enjoys working in the archives and digging through old documents to answer research questions received from military families, educational organizations, and researchers. All right, well, well thanks. That's, uh, that's a good overview of, of, of both of you, and, and I love the fact you both love history. So <laughs> this is going to be a really good discussion. So let's just uh, uh, jump into this. Uh, so Tracy and, and Vicki, can you describe the role of women in the Army and, and how it's changed throughout American history?
2: So Absolutely. Um, the role of women in the Army and how it's changed over time is the guiding theme that we use here at the Army Women's Museum to interpret and teach history. So a few years ago, the museum underwent a total renovation and expansion, and we had the opportunity to examine Army women's history and to find the most effective ways to interpret this almost 250 years of history in a meaningful and manageable way, (laughs) because it is a lot of history. So we discovered that a great way to look at the big picture of Army women's history is to find those pivotal moments of change and kind of explore why they occurred and then how they set the stage for the next seismic shift. So here at the museum, we created five distinct galleries that chronologically cover the history from 1775 to the present. But these galleries also encapsulate the time periods where we can explore three critical questions. So we ask, what did the Army need at the time? What were women willing to do? And then what would society allow them to do? So to give you an example, a significant change occurs between World War I and World War II. So during the American Revolution and the Civil War, the majority of women were camp followers who were providing basic logistical support. And there were some women who stepped outside of these roles into, you know, um, things to work such as doctors and spies, but the vast majority of women were serving in these traditional roles. But with World War One, we see a major change when the Army needs women with particular skill sets. So a great example being the Signal Corps telephone operators, also known as the Hello Girls. So when General Pershing called for American switchboard operators to go to France to work with the AEF, he was calling for a female workforce. And this really helped recognize and legitimize women's roles in the Army. Yet, when these women came home, even though they had worn uniforms and they had paperwork that was from the military, they weren't recognized as veterans, and they didn't receive any military benefits. So, with World War II on the horizon, we see Congresswoman Edith Norris Rogers of Massachusetts putting forth a bill for the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, or the WAC. So, she had seen firsthand what had happened to the women of World War I. And she vowed that if women were to serve again with the Army, this time they would serve with the rights, privileges, and protections of a soldier. And that's exactly what happened. So women filled this critical manpower shortage during World War II. And by the war's end, over 200,000 women served at home and abroad. And as a result, that original legislation for the WAC, which noted that the Women's Army Corps would last the duration of the war plus six months, Turns out that these women proved themselves capable and the WAC becomes a permanent part of the Army in 1948. So do you see how we look at these cause and effect relationships to kind of explain the history, look at the turning points, and then make it accessible for our visitors of all ages?
0: Now, just a quick question for the the, uh, the hello girls in World War One: Did Congress ever retroactively go back and, and like officially make them veterans, or did they just completely miss out on all that?
2: Actually, they did um, in 1977. They were recognized finally. Yes, unfortunately, most of them had died by then, but it was a long, hard-fought battle that they were finally recognized. Um, A more recent example can be found in 2013 um, when the combat exclusion policy was rescinded by General Martin Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Leon Panetta, who was the Secretary of Defense. So what that policy had said was that women were barred from being assigned to most ground combat units, yet women were clearly serving in combat roles in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we had women serving in female engagement teams, we had women working in cultural support teams, being awarded Purple Hearts, and even Silver Stars for combat action. So thus, after more than 10 years of war, our leaders recognized that women had become an integral part of the Army. Um, and enabled them to perform their mission, and um, that women were routinely demonstrating courage, skill, patriotism. And as a result of that policy change, today women can do any job in the Army if they meet the standards.
0: Yeah, I, I, excellent. And then um, I, I know that like, uh, for the military police corps, you know, there was a lot of women who were serving there on the front lines um, because really in, in, in the wars, Afghanistan and Iraq, you can't really say there was a front line. The lines were everywhere in an, in an insurgency, and so they definitely proved um, uh, proved effective. And uh, like you said, I think it's it's great that uh, it led to the um, the act that allowed women into all jobs. Um, now, over the course of Army history, well, who would you say are just uh, some of the most influential women? Um, I, I know there are a lot, but who who are some that jumped to the? Uh, I guess. Uh, the top of your head and and maybe that you highlight there at the Army Women's Museum.
2: Right. So we feature so many amazing women here at the museum. It's really hard to single them out. And what we've tried to do is have a nice mix of women who are the more recognizable history makers, as well as the quiet professionals who kind of shape the army, but will probably never make the history books. Um, so like a famous example would be Dr. Mary Walker. From the Civil War. She was the only woman in our nation's history who's been awarded a Medal of Honor. And that was in 1865 for her medical service as a contracted surgeon. And interestingly, Dr. Walker was actually taken prisoner of war here in the Richmond area. I know in your last podcast, you talked to Dr. Hampton and he mentioned Cathay Williams. Uh, so she's the only documented woman to fight with the Buffalo Soldiers, and she disguised herself as a man and changed her name from Cathay Williams to Williams Cathay. Um, I'm inspired by some lesser-known stories such as Privates Joyce Cooch and Rita Johnson, who were the first two WACs to attend um, airborne school in 1973. That was a pretty pivotal cool moment in Army history. And then uh, Lieutenant Marcella Hayes, who was the first African-American woman to graduate from the Army Flight School in 1979. And, of course, Captain Shay Haver and Lieutenant Kristen Grease, uh, who uh, first graduates from Ranger School. Um, but there are also people um, that really served in groups that are deserving of recognition as well. And so one of the stories that we've been researching recently here are the Angels of Bataan. And these are 77 Army and Navy nurses who fled Manila in December of 1941. And they set up hospitals in the jungles of Batan under just awful, awful conditions. And then moved into the tunnels of Corregidor and were eventually held for three years as prisoners in the Japanese internment camp of Santo Tomas. And uh, we just recently, within the last year, received an archival collection from one of these women. So what's amazing here is that there's still so much history sitting in trunks in attics and basements that's coming to light. And that's really what makes our job um,
1: so exciting. And and I think Vicki had one she wanted to share. Yeah, I'm always drawn to stories about uh, people that are willing to brave the unknown. And one group of women that were courageous and ready to face the unknown were the Nisei women or the second-generation uh, Japanese-American women. And uh, during World War II, several hundred were selected for a variety of jobs with uh, a small group trained in in linguistics to serve as translators and office workers in Tokyo. And then others received more traditional training. They were in clerical, medical, and supply positions. But what I thought was really interesting was that some of these women were actually in internment camps before becoming waxed and just wanted to show... Uh, that they were patriotic and they wanted to support the United States. So I thought that was a, a pretty big transition to come out of a camp and go into the wax.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating story. I, I have not heard that before, uh, and I think that you know, I'm going to explore that a little bit more and maybe share some of those stories, and get, I'll get with you and and uh, share some of those stories uh, on our social media. You know, we all uh, hear a lot about the, the 442nd, the Nisei Americans, who, like the women, were in internment camps, but then they fought and became the uh, most highly decorated uh, American unit in World War II.
2: And Lee, also here at the museum, we do have a memorial kiosk where we share the stories of the 125 American women, um, army women, sorry, Mm -hmm. who died since um, Mm 9-11 serving an important, those are important stories to tell,
0: too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just from my experience, I was, um, when I was on active duty in, in the Army, I was an artillery officer. So, you know, um, we, we honor the, the idea or the concept of Molly Pitcher, who um, I believe wasn't a, a single person. <laughs> it, was a, it was a nickname for the women that you had mentioned before, you know, did logistical support, I think, back in the, in the Revolutionary War. Right, it wasn't like just one person, was it? It was, it was a um,
2: no. There were several women women that um, Mm -hmm. served. The one that we um, have featured here is Margaret Corbin, Um, and so she had followed her husband John, uh, and he was mortally wounded on the battlefield, and she continued to fire at his position.
0: All right. And then the uh, the other one that just comes to mind for me is uh, you mentioned before. uh, You know, women in combat have been uh, now receiving, I think, several silver stars, but Sergeant Leanne Hester the first uh, female to receive a silver star in combat in uh, I think it was in 2005 in Iraq and uh um, and then
2: Monica Brown shortly a- shortly after okay. her.
0: Mhm. Right. So um so yeah some some pretty am- amazing um in- incidents here in in army history uh um uh, with with women. But now um I want to transition a little bit because you've been doing a lot of work down there at Fort Lee because Fort Lee is 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 getting ready to be renamed in April to Fort Gregg Adams. So can you tell us a little bit about the role of the Army Women's Museum uh, in working with the Naming Commission?
2: Um, Sure. So just as a little context, um, the Naming Commission has identified nine Army installations whose names are affiliated with the Confederacy. And three of these are actually in Virginia, including ours, uh, which was named after Confederate General Robert E. Lee. So our new name is going to be Fort Gregg Adams, and that is in honor of Lieutenant General Arthur Gregg and Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams. So -hmm. Lieutenant General Gregg was a trailblazing quartermaster who joined in 1945, and he actually helped desegregate the Army right here at Fort Lee. He also served in Japan, Vietnam, and Germany. And um, when the Army established an award for logistics, innovation, and excellence um, back in 2016, they named it after Lieutenant General Gregg. And he is the only honoree on the list who's still living. So this is very exciting that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, General Beck is going to be here for our rededication. The Adams part of the name is for Lieutenant um, Colonel Charity Adams. He was the commander of the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion, the only unit of Black women to serve overseas during World War II. And so the 6888 is known for developing this efficient and effective sorting and tracking system to tackle the severe mail backlog that had occurred after the D-Day invasion and the Battle of the Bulge. They're really um, credited with um, boosting morale and redirecting over 17 million pieces of mail in the European system of operations. So the museum, our role in the whole process was actually very exciting. and, and just to clarify, uh, there are three historical facilities here. So when I say the museum team, there's really it's the Army Women's Museum, the Quartermaster Museum, and then the um, Ordnance Training Support Facility. So we're really one big happy family.
0: Right, and then uh, but the uh, for ordnance and quartermaster, they they train soldiers there. Is that correct?
2: Yes, yeah, so, um, they sure do, and uh-huh. and we have soldiers that come through the Army Women's Museum as well. So we are a training facility, um, training installation here.
0: Which is that tie into Greg? I, I would say for the quartermaster.
2: Absolutely, yes. And actually into logistics in general. Because, um, you know, both, um, both General Gregg and uh, Lieutenant Colonel of Charity Adams were sustainers, and we're the home of sustainment. So, yeah. But what we were asked to do was we were asked at the beginning of this process to prepare submissions for a new name. So the three curators of the facilities did our research, we collaborated, we debated, and we finally submitted some names. Uh, the primary one that we agreed on was being Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams. Um, and then we submitted our names. And as it turns out, the commission received 34,000 names.
0: Oh, wow. So
2: there was an... For, fact, for Fort Lee alone
0: an- or just in general?
2: So for the- for in general. Oh, wow. That was their original uh, submission list was 34,000 names. So there was an enthusiastic response yeah. across the right? Um, across the country for the commission. So then the commission started visiting the nine installations to meet with the communities and the stakeholders. Um, and when they came to Fort Lee, we hosted the commission here at the Army Women's Museum for a community engagement panel. And then as a staff, we ensured that we participated in every single event that the commission had here on Fort Lee, they came a couple different times. So um, it was really exciting to see their engagement with the community. They wanted to understand who we are, um, what, we, what we were hoping for with a new name. And <clears throat> so it was very rewarding. And amazingly, the commission was able to screen those thousands and thousands of names down. And as you can imagine, we were absolutely overjoyed to see the name Greg Adams. And as I said, Fort Lee is the home of CASCOM, which is the Combined Arms Support Command, and uh, the sustainment, sustainment Center of Excellence. So we figured um, they picked two really outstanding examples of Army sustainment logistics.
0: Uh, th- th- yeah, that's really amazing. Wow, 34,000. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a process that they had to go through. Um,
2: right. And actually, Lee, if people are interested, um, the commission's report is online, and it's at www.thenamingcommission.gov. And it, they've written a beautiful report that explains how they went about the process, why they went about the process. It has lists of every single name that was submitted, and then how they called them down and started to put them into categories. So if people are interested in the process, it's really beautifully explained on their website.
0: Oh, perfect! No, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and no, we'll, re- we'll try. To, let's remind them again at the end of this uh, about that website because I know there's a lot of questions about that. But what's really nice is, you know, how we're honoring Army history. Uh, in in this uh, naming process. Um, um, but now let's talk a little bit more about Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams. So um, y- you've talked about her being the commander of the Six Triple Eight. So um, tell me more about uh, her significance and her impact on Army history.
2: Well, Charity Adams was a part of the women of Army women's history from the establishment of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in May of 1942, or the WAC. So we had a segregated society and a segregated army in World War II. But influential women, such as Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune and First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, helped ensure that African-American women would be included in the first WAC officer candidate class that was held at Fort Des Moines, Iowa. So the directive was that only 2% of the army could be women, and out of that 2%, only 10% could be black. So when the first 440 officer candidates arrived at the officer candidate class, 39 of them were African Americans, and one of them, of course, being Charity Adams. So she had graduated from Wilberforce University and been teaching school for a few years in Ohio when she decided that um, the Army looked like an exciting challenge, and uh, and uh, volunteered for this first class. Um, so she turned out to be the very first woman, to, first African American woman, to receive her commission. And uh, when she graduated, she, her first assignment was as a, as a company commander at the first WAC training center at Fort Des Moines, and that was because of her education background. She also served as a convoy officer when troops were moved to other posts, and she frequently uh, participated in recruiting activities and war bond drives. And then of December of 1944, she was selected to command the 68th
1: to 88th Central Postal Directory Battalion. So uh, when I think of Charity Adams, the word that comes to mind is courage. Uh, As Tracy said, she was teaching, taking graduate courses, yet saw that there was uh, an opportunity and a challenge with becoming a WAC. And uh, at that point, no one was really sure how women were going to fit in to the military, let alone how black women were going to fit in. Yet Charity Adams stepped up uh, to, to not just participate. She stepped up to shape the whole story. So almost eighty years later, I still see her actions as as remarkable.
0: Almost a visionary, I would say, in, in some some.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just, I don't know what was going through her mind, and I'm sure that when uh, they said you're going overseas with eight hundred and fifty five women to tackle this uh, male situation, <laughs> I, I'm sure that she was thinking, well, wow, how, what did I get myself into, and. Uh, with the fact that, as we know, there were, she had a lot of supporters, but there were also detractors as well. So there were a lot of eyes on her and and the the unit. Uh, And at the same time, with all this mail uh, backlog, they were dealing with the whole morale situation with the soldiers not getting any news from home. Um, And when they got there, they found this huge backlog of mail. We've got pictures of mounds and mounds of mail in, in warehouses that had Rodents and uh, that there were incomplete uh, addresses on all of these letters. There were packages from Christmas that had been there for months and months, with with you know all sorts of problems with that. And uh, one of the things that uh, we found out was that there were over seven million Americans in the European theater, and there were seventy five hundred people named Robert Smith. So you can imagine. Trying to sort through all sorts of mail with all these. If you look at some of the pictures they have, sometimes it was just one name, you know, their first and last name on an envelope sent, so you had no clue how to get these uh, pieces of mail to
0: the people. What a challenge! So uh,
1: she, yes, I, I, I mean, but she and her team came up with a concept of how to handle it, and uh, they got done in record time. So I feel that her, her success really. Inspired others as and uh, had not only people of color wanting to join the military because I saw that he had done so well and was uh, an inspiration, but also women to say that they wanted to join and they wanted to participate. Uh,
0: What did she do after the war? Did she remain in the army? Did she continue to contribute to the to getting um, uh, was it the wax becoming a permanent part of the army?
2: Actually, um, she wrote in her book that. She felt the army was well on its way by the end of the war to desegregation. And so she got out of the army and she decided to become an activist in her community. So she went on, um, she she lived in Ohio and she did a great many uh, wonderful community activities um, there in Ohio. Uh,
0: And then uh, apparently she wrote a book then. Uh, When did that book come out? Was that like years after World War II or was it soon after the war? It was. Oh, okay. All right. Well, cool. Well, an exciting woman. But then, um, of course, the unit that she commanded, the 6888, was uh, very significant. And you've detailed some of that. But I understand that you're also designing an, ex- an exhibit now about the 6888. So can you uh, talk a little bit about that project?
2: So when the news of the redesignation was announced, we decided that it would be the perfect time to design an exhibit about the 6888. So we had been telling this story since we opened our doors here in 2001. But i um, Quite honestly, we only had one artifact in the entire Army Museum enterprise related to the 6888, and that was Charity Adams' uniform. So we realized that in order to tell the story, we would really uh, need to gather more of the history. Um, And so with the support of Colonel Brian Hunt, who's the director of the AME, we undertook a collection effort. So for the last six months, we've been working with the families of the 6888 to gather their stories, through both archives and artifacts. And our goal is to present an authentic interpretation of this amazing unit. And one of um, the focuses is the actual work that they did. So it's been fun to kind of look at how did they tackle this mail problem? What were the strategies that they used? What were the instruments that they used? Um, The locator cards and the, you know, stamp-canceling machines and the mail bags. And so that's just really been fun for us to explore um, the story in different angles and uh, luckily we've got a very generous um, financial support organization called the Friends of the Army Women's Museum Association and in fact Vicki is a board member for um, our organization, their nickname is FAMA. But they um, have been able to fund an exhibit design with Steve Feldman um, Design Consulting. So we are well on our way to having the exhibit um, complete, and soon it should go out for um, you know a, a bid on fabrication. So we're hoping to have this up by um, the beginning of next year.
0: Okay, when do you think the exhibit will actually open?
2: Yeah, so we're hoping January or February of 2024. Okay. I, I would love sooner, but I'm not sure about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, no. It's hard to say right now, but just a yeah, that ballpark figure, so people can uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, well, that's uh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it, it, um, it's an amazing unit, <laughs> and and when you talk about what they did, uh, you know, as, as a former soldier, as a combat veteran, you know, these these things like mail. Of course, these days we've got the email, but um, uh, in, in those days, they getting that mail. Um, it was such a huge difference in in in, um, in uh, morale, you know, improving morale. So um, they really did a great job in in helping the war effort in that way.
2: They did. and and one of the stories um, Lee, that we are going to explore in the exhibit too is that we say that this is the only black unit to go overseas. But the unit was comprised of eight hundred and fifty five predominantly African American women. But it did include other segregated Latin American, Caribbean, and multiracial women. So I think it's important to remember that you know, the Army segregated. If um, you know, you're know you an Afro-Caribbean woman, you were put in with the African American women. So we do have an opportunity to tell that story as well, which is going to be, I think, very interesting and um, enlightening.
0: And so, uh, uh, Vicky, uh, as a volunteer there at the archives— Uh, in the museum, what has been your role in the exhibit process?
1: So what I've been working on uh, was finding images for the exhibit, as well as doing some researching of facts. Um, I've actually enjoyed having an opportunity to go through some of our own archive material to see what information we had on Charity Adams and the six triple eight members and reading a lot of the articles that we have and listening to some of the oral history. So Ah, uh, it's been a fun experience in uh, trying to pull all this together so that Tracy can decide how she wants the exhibit to look, what what story she wants to tell. So uh, I can't wait for it to open just to see the final product.
0: And then, well, what are some of the unexpected challenges and, and rewards that you've encountered in researching this exhibit?
1: So, um, we spent a lot of time trying to find the right images and facts for the exhibit to be able to tell the stories. And uh, I've enjoyed contacting small museums that uh, have been recipients of the papers and artifacts of women from the unit. Uh, and we're, we're trying to collect those images. And while they may not be used in the actual exhibit, Tracy is looking to do some online exhibits to expand on the stories of these women. Um, it's amazing, too, how many museums do have items from the various 6888 members. And one interesting story uh, Tracy was looking for an image of Mary McLeod Bethune, and it turned out that the National Park Service has a historic site in uh, Washington D.C. called the Mary McLeod Bethune Council House, which was the first headquarters of the National Council of Negro Women and was also her last home. And they have, I mean, in a remarkable treasure trove of images. I mean, just just phenomenal images of uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and Black Wax, and so. The archivist up there was tremendous. I mean, he—it would be. I would send an email and say, "Hey, here's the images we want," and it would be within an hour we would have these high-resolution images so that we could figure out what to use. So, really, I mean, it's been like a treasure hunt, just trying to find out what's out there and what not. Maybe we can't use it today, but we can use it in the future. So, it's been a very fun experience.
0: Yeah, you know, we get a lot of uh, emails and and calls here at the Center of Military History from family members of veterans uh, from World War II, uh, to Korea, even Vietnam, saying, you know, my my grandfather or my father just recently passed away and, and we've, we've got their footlocker full of stuff. Can you take it? Do you want it? Uh, but if people find information about women in the Army or about the 6888, um, is that something that you're uh, willing to at least take a look at and possibly uh, take from them?
2: Absolutely. They're welcome to contact us. In the Army Museum Enterprise, we have a pretty rigorous collections process. So it would have to be items that um, we don't have represented in our current collection. But I'm um, always happy to talk to families and um, kind of explore what they have. What's hard, though, Lee, about what we do? I know you interview a lot of historians, and they write books, and they have lots of words they can use
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to
2: describe the history. The hard part for us, like Vicky is saying, is you know we we have a limited word count in an exhibit. We have a limited number of images we can use, so we really have to think about how do the images represent a larger picture. How do the images fit together to tell a story? So unlike a history book, we've got to really edit and think about interpretation and visitor and how people are going to learn and what we want them to leave with. So it's exciting but challenging.
0: Yeah. Well, like they say, right. Uh, Uh, A a good picture is worth a a thousand words.
2: Well, one of the other exciting things that happened recently um, was we were approached by a family, the Kearney family, and um, there's an iconic photograph of Charity Adams inspecting the 6888 in Birmingham, England. I'm sure that you've seen it. She's walking, she looks like, and there's a woman behind her. Well, the the family first saw that image published in Ebony Magazine in 1994. And they immediately recognized the woman behind Adams as their aunt, Captain Mary Kearney. But the caption said it was Captain Abby Noel Campbell. So the family, back in 1994, wrote the magazine and said, hey, this is, you know, um, misidentification. And basically we're told you need to go to the, you know, National Archives and, and get it fixed. But For decades, the family has been petitioning and writing organizations and trying to get the caption corrected. Well, when their request landed here at the Army Women's Museum, we researched the issue and discovered supporting evidence and contemporary images and film footage that um, can explain the misidentification and how it was made. So Captain Abby Noel Campbell was at Battalion XO. But in the photograph, the woman walking behind um, Charity Adams is Captain Mary Kearney, the Alpha Company commander, and the women in the picture are all Alpha Company. So you can kind of see how that mistake made, yeah. So we here at the museum were able to successfully petition the National Archives and Records Administration to make a correction to the photo, and uh, a researcher note that now states, and I quote, the U.S. Army Center of Military History has identified the officer with Major Charity E. Adams as Captain Mary Kearney and not Captain Abby Noel Campbell, all three women served in the 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion. So that was just such an honor to be able to restore that name after 80 years of being misidentified.
0: Great, I love that 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 kind of work where you're correcting history, making it you know making sure accuracy. So. Um. Great job! Yeah. Well,
2: interestingly, we found one article where from 1945 where it was correct.
0: Mm. Oh. And then
2: he said, once it got reprinted incorrectly, then that's what took off for the next seven decades.
0: Oh, how Isn't that interesting.
2: interesting! Yep. Like one mistake, and then yeah. you know, perpetuate yeah.
0: itself. And 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 that I think is is uh, it's important when we when we do get these calls and these emails from um, from veterans or families of veterans to you know, pay attention to it because they oftentimes they are spot on correct. And, you know, we have to update things. So uh, if people out there are listening and you know of of, of a correction, please let us know. Um, so now, um, Tracy, Vicki, uh, we've covered a lot here, but is there anything else we uh, didn't bring up that you, you think is important to address?
2: Um, I would just like to make a note um, and express my gratitude to the families, the 6AAA descendants that we've been working with. They have been so generous in sharing their stories and their family treasures with us. Um, It's very clear to me that the strength and the bravery of their mothers and aunts and grandmothers has been passed down through these family lines. Um, The legacy stories are just as inspirational almost as the 6888 stories themselves. And uh, in almost every single case, the family had multiple family members who served in World War II. just like with the Nisei women that Vicki mentioned earlier, oftentimes, like those, um, you know, there were multiple family members that were serving. So um, it, it's been really, really inspirational to learn of these family histories. There are so many stories left to be told. And just uh, um, like I said, the generosity in sharing the artifacts and the images with us, and then sharing them with the nation. So um, it's been really awesome to work with the families. And I did want to also just quickly acknowledge there have been a couple of people who've been tirelessly working on the 6888. So right now it's in the news. And, you know, you might have heard that Tyler Perry is making a Netflix movie and Blair Underwood is making um, a Broadway musical. But years ago, uh, retired Colonel Edna Cummings and retired Master Sergeant Liz Helm Fraser were out there advocating for this story to be told. And they were the ones that walked the halls of Congress to get the Congressional Gold Medal bill passed. They worked with retired um, Navy Commander Carlton Philpot to get the monument built at the Buffalo Soldier uh, commemorative area at Fort Leavenworth. So right now there's a swell, and it's so exciting to see the story shared. But there have been these civilian advocates that have been carrying the torch for this story for a long time. And I really want to thank them as well.
0: Great, no, and, and that's important. And, and I know uh, we all appreciate the, the support of the community uh, on these types of things. And if um, I just want to put a plug in also that throughout the month of March, um, here from the Center of Military History, on our social media, we are going to highlight the six-triple-eight. <clears throat> We're going to highlight other uh, um, units, uh, uh, women's units and uh, highlight some, um, some uh, significant women who have contributed to Army history as well. And, um, you know, just remind people that for more information about uh, women's history in the Army, they should check out the, the website for the Army Women's Museum uh, or visit the Army Women's Museum. <laughs> How, um, uh, what is the challenge in getting on post to visit your museum?
2: So uh, you can get on post with a valid DOD ID. And if not, you just need to go to the visitor center and you check in through there, and they do a quick security check.
0: Great, yeah. So and if not, you know
2: you're coming ahead of time, you can submit your application prior to coming on post.
0: So and anybody can go in; you just have to go through a security uh, check.
2: Um, yes, 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 yes. If you can pass the security check, which I believe has a valid ID, it, it changes. You so you have a, I think, the government ID, yes, or a state or something. a state or something. Yeah. You, I would definitely recommend because the rules have changed. Um, recently. So make sure that you go to the Fort Lee Visitors installation access page on our website just to make sure you've got everything you need to get on.
0: And if you come in April or later, it'll be the Fort Greg Adams Visitors Center. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and hey, um, before we get into the trivia, uh, the Whoa trivia, just say again that you mentioned uh, a website about the naming commission. Just uh, I want to sh- make sure we share that again.
2: Sure. So it's www thenamingcommission.gov
0: thenamingcommission.gov okay great
2: thanks and then ours is awm.lee.army.mil and I'm, I'm guessing that might change too. yeah that,
0: that might change soon but they could always people can always link to your museum straight from the CMH website at history.army.mil oh okay so now before we close it is time for our segment called Whoa Trivia so there's a, a piece of significant Army trivia that you can share about the role of women in Army history. So what do you have for me?
2: Okay, so earlier in the podcast, we mentioned the Hello Girls of World War I receiving their veteran status in 1977 uh, during President Jimmy Carter's administration. There was another group of, of women who was also recognized at that same time. Do um, you know who they were?
0: Oh, gosh. Um They
2: did not receive their veteran status at the time that they served and were granted it in 1977.
0: Oh, wow. Um, hmm, Trying to think.
2: Did I stump you?
0: Yeah, I think you did.
2: It was the Women Air Force Service Pilots, the WASP
0: of World War II. Oh, right. They
2: were, like the Hello Girls, they were contracted, Mm -hmm. not enlisted. And the Air War was won before the ground war, so they were sent home and told, thank you for your service, not receive their veteran status until
0: 1977. And that was World War II, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, good. Yeah, because that was Army Air Corps that they were, but they were contracted by the Army Air Corps, right?
2: Right. And they, there was some debate about um, they weren't going under the Women's Army Corps and they weren't exactly under the Army Air Corps. So I think that you know, they kind of got left out at the end as contractors and uh, were sent home and, yep. So we do have an exhibit here at the museum about the walk.
0: Yeah, that's an in- interesting, again, a very um, a lesser known group of women who contributed. And I think um, when we talk to our historians here, we may do a social media post about that next month as well, or, or um, uh, in, in the month of March. Well, thank you very much, Tracy and Vicki, for your insights today about the role of women in Army history and um, about some of the, the new exhibits that are coming up in the, uh, the Army Women's Museum. And if anyone wants to learn more about the history of women in the Army or how to visit an Army museum and learn more about Army history in general, I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time... We're history.
1: The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.